like the Lord has put something on my heart that is important to share, and I won't have relief until I've shared it, so I'm going to try to share it today. My brother Simeon shared something with me that really resonated with me Wednesday. He said that he was driving down the interstate, and he was tempted to go home according to the standard path, which was Ross Road, I believe, but instead he took White Oak or whatever it was, and his wife said, you know, what you doing? And he just said, he made some in indication of the fact that he was wanting to be obedient to Brother Paul's admonition from the Lord last Sunday when the Lord said, follow me. And, and that that's not just a one-moment decision to give your life to Christ, but that's a daily submission and guidance of the Spirit that would lead you in places where you don't know the outcome and you don't know the why. You get up and go like Philip when you don't know the destination, you meet it on the, on the way. So he was going, and he, he felt like the Lord told him to take this, and, and, uh, and I think it was more to, to prompt a process of thought in his mind. And he said, you see, we'd like to think, well, maybe the Lord had me take this because there's some appointment that I'm supposed to have down this road, or there's some tragedy that I'm supposed to avoid down the other road. But he said, just by changing my position, I have completely altered the arrangement and the outcome of the other drivers who would have been coming to the intersection where I was heading. And he was implying that his absence was as powerful, potentially, to what was happening to the others as his presence might have been in this other road that he was taking. It's a powerful thought, and you really should read the little pamphlet that my dad ministered back in the 90s, Moving Mountains, where he talks about quantum physics and how everything is connected. But you think about that and being in the will of God. And, you know, there, there's a funny saying that says, we're all here because we're not all there. And I don't think that's exactly what he was implying, but there, there is, it's, there's a fact that when we make the choice based on the prompting of the Spirit to be where we are, we're closing down possibilities elsewhere. We're opening possibilities here and there. Everything is adjusting, and we're not just affecting ourselves. That's the big lie, that our decisions affect only ourselves. Our decisions affect everyone around us. If we have a posture of faith, that affects everyone around us. If we have a deficit of faith, that vacuum affects everyone around us. If we yield to temptation, that affects everyone around us. If we resist temptation, that affects everyone around us. We're not islands. No man is an island entire of himself. Each is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. We're connected. We influence each other. We affect each other. And so as we move forward in pursuit of this unity, love is the truth by which we set our compass course. Love is the, that's the azimuth, the fulcrum, the, the lodestar, you might say, by which we calibrate our direction. And if we're, if we're going to be one, then we're going to have to bring our vision 
our aspirations, what moves us, what affects us emotionally, we're going to have to bring it into alignment with that love of God and the will that advances that love on the earth. Jesus understood the quantum physics of his own life, for he said, it is expedient that I leave this situation or else other things won't happen that need to happen in your lives. I'm paraphrasing, but you get it. We can sense it in my dad's passing. His departure has done something. And I suppose that if we adopted the wrong attitude and the wrong heart, it would be entirely negative. But by faith and with love, amidst all the pain and all the hurt and all the memories and all the, the missing of him, he has left a void that God by his grace is taking our hands and leading us to fill. Not to replace him, but to continue what he gave us into the future. If the Lord has called you to be in this community, in this context, your absence is helping someone somewhere else. Your absence at, at an intersection in another place is somehow a blessing to them. And your presence here is a blessing to us. My mom on uh, Friday night, we had a dedication and she shared some of what she just shared. She said that when, when they began to contemplate the great tribulation, the truth of what the Bible teaches regarding the turmoil at the end of the ages, it totally recalibrated, it totally reset their priorities. And they began to make changes in their lives according to that truth. And we are living out the fruit of those changes. You can't undo those changes and expect to be in this reality. You can't stand here 50 years later and say, well, I missed it by 50 years, but let's just imagine that we did it. Let's just ask God to make it as if we had. There are changes. There are doors that you, you pass, and you will never pass them again. They will cease to exist as an open door. There are opportunities that you forfeit they close and they're gone. You don't ever have them again. And I think of when they made some of those adjustments like homeschooling, like seeking to be rooted on the land, really examining their, their attitude toward vocational work and jobs. When they made some of those adjustments, adjusting their interaction with entertainment, there were those who mocked them. There were those who really scorned them, and even specifically regarding the Great Tribulation. Shortly after that, they found themselves in Colorado, and, and they were, um, the, the, the fellowship was learning to garden and learning to farm with horses and learning to be one with the land and with each other on that, in that context. And some of their closest friends began to spread word about them and say, oh, they're growing wheat for the Tribulation. Ha, 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 you know. What a joke. They're, they're, they're trying to prepare for some impending judgment that's coming. And they laughed and told it around the dinner table to each other. And, you know, and you stand back 50 years later and you look at that organization 
And you look at the laughers who scoffed at the notion that judgment was coming. And I suppose in some narrow-minded, deceived way, you could say, ha, and no judgment came. <laughs> Someone might say, well, but it's only been 50 years. The Rechabites were faithful for over 300 before they saw the benefit of their obedience. And that would be a valid explanation. But there's another valid explanation, and that is that the judgment did come. We are sitting in a place spared from judgment. Right now. Right this minute. I read this passage from Isaiah this morning, and it's the Lord declaring judgment. And I, I want to elaborate a little bit on, on judgment, but listen to this passage from Isaiah. I will make boys their leaders and toddlers their rulers. People will oppress each other, man against man, neighbor against neighbor. Young people will insult their elders and vulgar people will sneer at the honorable. In those days, a man will say to his brother, since you have a coat, you be our leader. Take charge of this heap of ruins. But he will reply, no, I can't help. I don't have any extra food or clothes. Don't put me in charge. Jerusalem will stumble and Judah will fall because they speak out against Yahweh and refuse to obey him. They provoke him to his face. The very look on their faces gives them away. They display their sin like the people of Sodom and don't even try to hide it. They are doomed. They have brought destruction upon themselves. Tell the godly that all will be well for them. They will enjoy the rich reward they have earned. But the wicked are doomed, for they will get exactly what they deserve. Childish leaders oppress my people, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your leaders mislead you. They send you down the wrong road. And so in this passage, as in many others, the Lord is describing judgment in terms of people getting what they wanted. I said it yesterday, but many times he decrees judgment with language like this. You will be filled with the fruit of your own desires. That's his decree of judgment. Let them have their way. Isn't that what he does when they beg for quail? Oh, we have no meat. It's been so long since I've had protein. Please give us meat. And he said, oh, give them quail. And they gave, the quail came down from heaven and the people engorged themselves until the quail was coming out of their noses. And they died by the thousands. Sometimes the cruelest judgment is for the Lord to say, have it your way. I want to I show you that we might be living in a time spared from judgment. I'm just going to hypothesize. I'm going to borrow some biblical frameworks and I'm going to try to describe the days we live in right now in terms of how the Bible might have perceived them. Modern declaration of judgment. You just, you just tell me if, you, if it wouldn't be, if, if we were living in, in Bible days, how would they write about the times that we currently live in. Well, Paul did write about them actually to the Thessalonians, but here's an angle. 
This is the judgment. This is just a hypothetical, but I want you to just listen to, to, to open your mind a little bit. This is the judgment I have decreed on my rebellious house. This isn't scripture. This is me, but I'm going to give it in scriptural language to try to understand how they might have anticipated the times we live in. This is the judgment I will decree on my rebellious house. I will destroy their families with bitter rivalry and independence. Their marriages will rupture from vanity. I will bind the attention of the young to gadgets of horror until murder comes naturally. The strength of the young will be useless for I will keep them diverted by fantasies and vain imaginations that take them nowhere. Violence and beastly instincts shall control their youth until they are slain in, by mass even in their schoolhouses. Depression from living without God will plague the soul of a multitude until their children die more by their own hand than from any other cause. I could go on and on, but I could talk about the judgment that we're living in right now because of disobedience. What I just described to you was the American dream. I just described to you the American family where people are either not marrying or divorcing more than not. The, the American family where suicide is a more prevalent cause of death than any other cause. It's now caught up to and is surpassing, has surpassed in many states automobile accidents as the leading cause of death in America. Where the average person has nearly 400 acquaintances if you include social media and yet they, they say that they are lonelier, more isolated, less connected than they've ever been. Loneliness is an epidemic. Children hate their parents. Parents don't understand their children. The strong are distracted by watching screens and the intelligent are, are constantly bobbling their heads and moving their thumbs as they engage in meaningless so-called games that teach them how to fire quickly on sight. It's insane. We live in an insane time, brothers and sisters. The things that people speak now from the lecterns in, in universities or from the podiums of Congress would be satire 30 years ago. Children rule over them and toddlers have become their kings. And the Lord anticipated it all when he said, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and I will be your father. Because there's a scourge coming on families, homeschool, and you'll avoid it. There's a scourge coming on marriages. Adopt a different pattern and you'll avoid it. We are living in a time of judgment. We are living right now in a time of misery and woe on this land, on this nation, and on all of Western culture. And if we, by the grace of God, enjoy different outcomes, by and large, in this context, we have reason to be thankful. And it's because God gave us a vision. A vision for life, and a vision for life that was wholeness. Amen? And that vision 
is not a homestead version of Romanticism. Romanticism describes a philosophy, really, but a, a whole genre of literature and art and, uh, and philosophy, especially in the uh, early to mid-1800s that emerged. And Romanticism, it has nothing to do with, with uh, like romantic novels or something. Romanticism was people trying to worship the creature rather than the creator. It was people trying to react and recover from the death of hedonism and the death of, of, of rationalism in, in the Enlightenment philosophy. Amen. The Enlightenment philosophy had left the world so bleak. God is not creator. Darwin has come on the scene uh, by the, you know, right in the corresponding to Romanticism. Everything is, is naturalism. The Industrial Revolution had resulted from that. And people had been forced into unbelievably bleak conditions, hardships in these ugly settings, urban centers. Cities represent man's creation and the nature around us represents God's. And people saw that, that it was affecting it was affecting people's psyche. It was affecting their well-being. And so there was this desire through romanticism to find the beauty of life without God. And so there was this explosion of, of literature and art that just worshipped uh, the beauty of life. And it's kind of a Thomas Kincaid version of life. That's not what we're all about. You know how pretty? It's just so pretty. He's a good artist, but it's just so precious, it's a little bit revolting sometimes. No offense to those who have Thomas Kincaid, but there's an idealism. It's just fake. And it, it looks like the world with lipstick on it, Dad would say. And, and the, the, it, don't get me wrong, there's beauty to be seen. But that beauty is supposed to turn us back to God and a relationship of life with our maker. We're not supposed to worship the creature rather than the creator. Amen? Okay, so here we are again in a very modern world of techno-industrialism and gadgets and technology is just, we're in a, we're in a technological revolution. We've lived it through it. The, the iPhone didn't even exist until Obama was president. Things are changing very fast. The dot-com revolution and so on and so forth. Just in our lifetime, in my lifetime, we've gone through a technological revolution. And so there's an appetite as well. There should be for people to turn back to life and turn back to the land and turn back to real things, tangible things. But don't let it morph into a version of homestead romanticism. You say, well, this is what you were talking about a couple weeks ago. I know I'm here to talk about it again because that's not the vision. The vision is to be a witness that explains to principalities and powers and to the lost sheep of this world and to brothers and sisters caught in Babylon that there is a different way. There is a God of life and wholeness and we can become part of His kingdom, His bride that is in relationship with Him. Amen? That's our purpose. And whatever, whatever facilitates that, well, that has a noble purpose. That's, that's part of God's plan. That's part of God's vision. But we can't take one little function, we can't take one little aspect of our vision and make it the central thing. Thank you, Jesus. We can't slide 
into romanticism. We've got to keep the Lord and his eternal purpose at the center. The God who was stripped naked and beaten beyond recognition of a human being, who pulled a splintery beam of a cross all the way up to Golgotha. Amen. Where people wept at merely the sight of him, but he told them not to weep because something worse was coming our way. We got to keep in mind that that is what we're called to. It doesn't mean we don't enjoy the life, but that cannot become a life separated from the eternal purpose. And if it does, then it is an idol. It is idolatry. So, with that in mind, I want to segue, why do we have the fair? Why do we have the craft village? Somebody asked me this week from another community, they said, Brother Ossie, why do we do crafts? What is the point? And I think that their question was better than that, but that was basically it. I think that um, the tacit assumption under that question is if it's not economical, either in time or money, why do we do it? And what I'm saying is we don't do it in order to have a romanticism, our version of 1800s, 19th century romanticism. That's not why we do it. Why do we do it? Well, somebody will say, well, because God has given us in the Scripture to work with our hands. Paul says it in 1 Thessalonians, to work with your hands. God has given us in the Scripture in Genesis to till the earth, to earn our bread by the sweat of our brow. So it's not what the boy does to the wood, but what the wood does to the boy, as the famous quote goes. And that's true also. But why, why do we do what we do? I want to keep it real simple for all of us. Because we recognize that that is a culture of death. Why? Because whatever fragments causes death. Whatever integrates causes life, but disintegration causes death. Whatever composes causes life. Whatever decomposes, can you agree, causes death. And so what we see is that there are life systems which God gave in Scripture, like families, like communities, and relationally speaking, those represent context for the wholeness of life. All right? But the devil doesn't like God's intent behind those gifts, family and community, and so he has set about to systematically fragment those things. When man sets out to change the world, he writes a book. He starts a university. Amen? He runs for president. He makes a splash. When God sets out to bless all the families of the earth, he makes a family. When the devil sets out to undermine God's influence throughout all the earth, he destroys the family. He destroys fatherhood. He, he destroys the community, the larger family for the family. Do you follow me? So we have this bias, this very simple bias that says we have to have composition. We have to take pieces, arbitrary, scattered, disjointed pieces, and bring them together. Let God bring them together, bone by bone, bone sinew by sinew, 
until we see a living organism rise up that we're going to call the body of Christ. So we look at the world and we say, how does the world effectively undermine God's intent behind the family? Well, he does it through fragmentation, right? So my dad has given the example for years that when Moses asked to take the children of Israel out of Egypt, uh, Pharaoh tried to bargain with him. And he said, go, but leave your livestock. That's your work. Leave your work in Egypt, but go ahead and, and worship at, at, over there with the Lord. But just make sure you come back 9 to 5 to Egypt. And then he says, go, but, but leave your, your, your children in Egypt. So you can have your religion, but make sure you put them in the schools where they're going to really be indoctrinated. You hear the fragmentation that, that um, Pharaoh is bargaining for? When you read that, you know what he's doing. You know what Pharaoh's intent is. What is his intent? Moses is saying, I'd like to go away. And what is Pharaoh doing? He said, I'm going to keep something you love. Because if I can keep something you love, you're going to keep coming back. What that tells us is the devil doesn't mind temporary exodus. The devil, devil doesn't mind exodus, exodus forays, exodus vacations. We're going on a revival. Go, says the devil. Just leave your children in the schools. Just leave your vocations in Babylon. Because I know if I keep something you love, you're going to be coming back from that revival. Do you understand? The devil doesn't mind exodus forays but he really hates total separation because he knows that's when the Lord is going to be our father and we're going to be his sons and daughters and that's what he's trying to destroy. So as a people, we've looked at this thing more holistically and we've said, how has the enemy destroyed our values? We can't just complain and ask him to put prayer back in the schools. Does everybody see how dumb that is? I just see Moses and Aaron with a sign, you know, outside of Pharaoh, bring prayer back to Egypt schools, you know. I mean, weeping over, they tore down the Ten Commandments from the, from the palace of Pharaoh. What? We never wanted the Ten Commandments in the palace of Pharaoh. And I know it's more complicated than that because I know that God used a vitiated, compromised Christianity for a season that was merged with the state. But ultimately, we know that at the end of time, the voice is going to be, come out of her, my people. That is what's going to be sounding from heaven. Revelations 18, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, get out, my people. Why? Because judgments are coming. And if you'll come out and be separate, you won't partake of them you partake not of her sins nor receive of her plagues. So why do we do crafts? Why do we do the fairs? My, my question, but I'm saying why do we do anything that we do? Because we have taken a critical look at the systematic disintegration of the family. We saw that the devil wanted our kids to be separated from their parents so that they could be educated according to a certain model. The judgment has come on our neighbors in America. And parents are standing up by the thousands and tens of thousands in school board meetings pleading that they stop teaching their children racism 
in the name of fighting racism. This thing called CRT or critical race theory. You could go online and search parents by the thousands are standing up giving these impassioned pleas to school boards all over the country. It's a move. But what are they doing? They're talking to Janice and Jambres, the magicians of Pharaoh, saying, be nicer to our kids. All the while, God is saying through Moses, get ready to leave. Strap your belt on and stand up and prepare to get out of this place. Pull your kids completely out of that context and culture. And they're suffering a judgment which God spared us from when our parents obeyed the call to leave 50 years ago. And so we brought our kids home. And then we saw that the devil didn't like mothers home either, so he launched this, this, this baloney program in the name of liberty called Radical Feminism. A program that has effectively increased the net depression of women in America. A program that correlates directly to infertility and, and depression and depression to suicide across America. They won't tell you that. There's only a handful, incidentally, of feminists who have written about it. Non-believing feminists who have written about it. So the whole move of get them out of the home, get them in the workforce. We brought our kids home. And then we said, no, we don't buy your lie. We don't buy your yarn about freedom. We don't buy your equation that makes every vocation noble and worthy except the most noble and worthy, which is being a mother. So we're going to permit our women to come home and find dignity in being moms. So we brought our kids home. Then we brought our sisters home, our mothers home. And then, here we come, we wanted to bring our fathers home. Now, this doesn't mean that the father does not have a responsibility given by God to labor to provide for his family. If you do not provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. So, we accept and we recognize the need to earn a wage. Jesus said a worker is worth his hire, worthy of his hire. Amen? So, we're not against any of that. But we said, Lord, here's some more fragmentation. The Industrial Revolution was not done in a vacuum. It was done as a strategic advancement of the wrong kingdom to show what man could do without God. It was the Tower of Babylon 2.0. And man, did they improve on that little ziggurat. They've made themselves believe that they can reach into the heavens, sending people to the stars and so on and so forth. Do you follow with me so far? And so we said, fragmentation and specialization, it's hurting the family. We don't, we, don't, we don't dislike it because it's new. We dislike it because it's fragmenting, because it's decomposing, because it's dividing families. And we need to come together. There is life in wholeness. There is death in division. So we're going to generally fight division. Now, the economy in America where there is so much government interference, we do not live in a free market. If you're still under that illusion, um, 
this will be the wake-up call. We do not live in a free market. There's nothing laissez-faire about this market. It is tampered with and upheld and jerry-rigged by the government six ways to Sunday. When you, when you have the government subsidizing corn and milk and interfering with beef and all these major products and those subsidies go based on how much you grow only to the big guys, what have they effectively done? They said, we're going to pay for half the growing of this food, but we're only going to pay it to the people who produce it on a massive scale. What they've done is they've put the small farmer out of business. So we said, we've got to farm, we've got to be rooted to the land because there is life to be received when we plant seeds and water them and take our own food. Amen? There is, a, there is something that is added to our experience of life, of how it works. Oh, the parables of Jesus are borrowed from the farm. Amen? It's telling us that Jesus used farming to teach us the gospel. He can still use agriculture to teach us the gospel today. Amen? So there's life. There's, there's experience with kids. There's experience with nature. There's awareness and dependence on the seasons and all these good things. Okay? So it's not a strictly economical choice. In fact, we all probably pay more for our food to grow it than we do if we bought it from H-E-B, though that is changing. But it's a question of life, again. So we look at, at the way we want to be rooted to the land, but you can't earn a sufficient income, especially if you're trying to purchase property and assets to improve that life connected to the land. You can't earn a sufficient income being a farmer. Somebody will stand up and say, oh, yes, you can. Well, no, you can't. And if you can, show it to us and we'll follow you. But assuming that there has to be some other, there has to be some other subsidy or activity, by and large, for the most part, to subsidize this otherwise uh, rich life that doesn't involve a lot of money, we say, okay, Lord, what is our approach to business? We have to raise money. We can't build, we can't acquire properties, whether private or communal. We can't acquire properties without it. It's, it's, an it's a necessary evil of life. We don't want to become its servant, but we have, to, we have to use it still. Maybe the day will come where that's not necessary, but we don't live in that day right now, do we? So we say, okay, so, so we know what the life looks like. It looks like relationships. It looks connected to the land. It looks like a walk in the spirit and a walk in the word. It looks like helping each other. Okay, we're getting a pretty good sense of it, but that life doesn't earn a lot of money. So how can we subsidize that life in a way that conflicts with it at least of all, in a least possible way? Does that make sense? And so then we say, well, there are different kinds of business. There are service businesses, and those could at least be a transition into a more permanent kind of business. And then there would be this ideal where we could work from home. My dad called it cottage industry, right? A term that's been around for hundreds of years, right? And what's the objective of cottage industry? Well, it's to bring dads home. Why do dads need to be home? Moms. <laughs> um, dads need to be home because they have something to say to the children. They have help to render to the homestead. They're part of the picture. And that, 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 that's not something that can be achieved by everyone immediately. But isn't it a worthy goal to move in that direction? 
Now, when we say home, we don't mean that they, ha they can't leave the front door, nor the back door. We just mean that generally, they're going to find their fulfillment, their activity primarily in the circumference of the homestead and the community. Do you, do you understand? So that we would be whole, lacking nothing. Thank you, Jesus. And so here we come to craft. Craft is just a word to describe a genre of work that is more localized around the community and the home. And we know, we knew, my parents knew, my dad knew when he first called up Brother Howard, Brother Joel, talked about the fair. They knew that this was not going to be an economic boom right off the bat. They knew that. But they wanted to create a culture that led us in these directions and that predisposed us not toward computer science or factory labor, amen, or world traveling even per se, but that predisposed us toward working with our hands. Now, I got a hunch that if we had an outlet, Josiah, you help me on this, but I've got a, a pretty strong hunch. I, I've even got a belief that if we had an outlet where we could say to the fathers in this room, if you go into a cottage industry uh, producing some kind of craft, we can sell anything you make and you can support yourself. I got a hunch that everybody would go home. That almost everybody would go home. So I think that we like the idea behind the effort. Can I get a witness? Amen. Now, I also believe that there is a certain kind of construction that falls under the rubric of craft, certain kind of home building, and I think there is a certain kind that does not. But we want lives where we're not just working as a means to an end, but where the means and the end coincide and become one. Does that make sense? We want lives, ideally, where we have some pleasure in our labor. Doesn't mean that we won't always have some duress in our labor. Amen. Jesus was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief, and that was his labor. The writer of, of Proverbs says that, likens a young man's work to bearing the yoke in his youth. Amen. So, it's not always going to be sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows from the word go. And the Lord is going to use hardship as discipline to help us recognize the unrepented aspects of our flesh that still need to die. Okay? So don't go telling your boss, Brother Ossie said, I need to really like my work and I don't enjoy this. Let me off. But in the long term, we want, we want to work at things that express life, that express care, that express values and virtues transcendent to the task at hand, but certainly represented in that task. And so we have this culture that is trying to encourage this move toward craft while acknowledging that a real challenge is we don't have enough demand for our supply. Supply follows demand, and we wish we could greatly increase that supply. I mean that demand, excuse me. And we have a hunch that if ever we could massively increase the demand, 
the suppliers would follow. Do you understand? I mean, just, just for, prove me wrong. How many of you, if you could earn a living making a craft of any kind from a cottage, from, from a shop next to your home, if it would support your family, how many of you would, would be drawn to that sort of lifestyle? Raise your hand. Okay, so I'm not utterly crazy. It's what we want because we want wholeness and we want integration and we want composition. Now, now indulge me for a minute. Here's what we don't want. Here's what we don't want. We don't want people holding their work in contempt and viewing it only as a means to an end. We don't want get-rich-quick schemes where people are saying, if I'll just slave away and slave away and slave away, then I can buy my little piece of utopia and live my little independent life by myself with all my toys. You are going to forfeit the most life-giving years while you're chasing that dream. And you might achieve it, but it will be a nightmare. It does not satisfy. So what we don't want is guys saying, well, good grief, I can do this, but I can do that over there and make twice as much money. And I, gotta, I, I, I don't like this, but I, I'm just going to work really hard until I can make enough money and buy my toys and live my pleasurable hedonistic life. No, we want you to work where you work because it integrates you relationally into relationships of life. And we want you to work where you work because God gifted you and talented you to work in that manner. And the labor itself speaks to you and imparts to you life, even as Jesus used farming to teach us the gospel. Do you understand? This is the ideal, and we all have to take transitional steps toward this ideal, but can we agree on the ideal? We don't want you to start looking at work as something contemptible that you do in order to purchase your free time pleasures, because that is the mentality of a slave. That is a mentality of a prisoner. We want you to find life and meaning and purpose in what you do. We're going to maintain, in terms of the leadership of this church, we're always going to be looking to undo the devil's fragmentation, whether by philosophy or techno-industrial revolution or otherwise, we're going to be looking to undo fragmentation and replace it with cooperation and integration. That's our bias in full disclosure. Life. Life is our bias and wholeness brings life. Does this make sense to you? Amen. So when you talk with your kids about crafts, yes, we have to understand that right now we don't have the outlets that we desire. But do you know that this whole city has changed since we started doing crafts here. Do you know that the Waco Tribune Herald published a 12-series um, feature on Waco craftspeople and showed 12 different artisans that, have, that are making Waco 
what they're calling a center for artisan handmade crafts. Am I, am I getting that right? And you know who they featured first in that, in that 12-part series? Homestead Heritage. And they said Homestead was doing it before anyone was doing it. There are people, there are people here in Waco, like Clint Harp, who make a handsome living... And our brothers at least tell us, you correct me, Brother Caleb, that he started his craft business by digging through the, the burn pile at Restorations and pulling out pieces of wood to go make furniture with. He's featured on a, on a, on a network show, and that's what helped him. But there's a parable in that that troubles me. That others would dig through our junk pile, our burn pile of rejects, and make more of a life out of it than some of us who were born to inherit it. We need to get creative. We need to get prayerful. Amen? Some of the things that are in motion right now, we believe, Brother Josiah, myself, and other brothers, we get together and we prayerfully consider, how do we change this game? How do we increase that supply knowing that it would be followed, or rather that demand, knowing that it would be followed by suppliers. But we've all got to pray about this together. Do you understand? We've got to pray that the Lord opens uh, venues and outlets for our crafts. And I'm not saying that there's something intrinsically virtuous about craft as if it would make you a Christian apart from a walk with God. That's not what I'm saying. But there is something blessed. There is a blessing even in that economy. You know, the, the, when, we, when we say it's not economical, we should remember the original meaning of economy doesn't really have anything to do with money. It meant order of the household. And so we do want an economy that brings order to the household and allows us to be outside of Egypt and its plagues, outside of Babylon and its sins and plagues. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. And pursuing more and more of an independence and a wholeness of life. And, and, and what we're doing with the CSA, brothers and sisters, what we're doing with that is, has come about through much prayer and diligence and searching and discussion. We started that effort in 2016 because we wanted to solve the problem for real. We wanted to bring sustainable uh, success into the farm. And we, it, it, it's an economic problem, and we feel like we've, made strides to solve it, solve the economic dilemma. We don't want to be a front. We want to be the real thing. We want to be authentic. Amen? And we want to know why we do the things that we do. And so what I'm doing here today is saying Vision Recap 101, why we do the things that we do. It's not for economics, except if you mean the economics of relationship the oikonomia of life, the order of the household for the oikodomia, the building up of the household of God. We don't need to start looking at the fair as, why do we do this every year? Every child in this room considers that fair to be the most exciting time of year. And the kingdom of God belongs to attitudes like those children. They get it better than some of us. We are putting a stake in the ground and saying the economics may not all be in order, but the vision is right. And we're going to keep hitting this ground and making this effort until those waters part 
and we cross over into our promised land. We've come a long way, and we've got a long way to go, but we're never going to stop. We're never going to settle. We're going to go from strength to strength and one day appear before God in Zion. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> God's given us prosperity in many businesses, but don't lose the goal. He may have called you to a business for a transitional step where you're scattered hither and yon, and that may be his will, and he'll use it as long as it is his will. But don't lose the goal. Don't make an exception into a pattern. Always keep in mind what, what it's all about. Thank you, Jesus. My dad said that the land and the agriculture and the crafts were simply the framework. He said that they were the loom upon which the threads of relationship could be warped and then, amen, woven together to create a tapestry. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, that represented the life of Jesus on the earth. So the crafts aren't the goal. They're the framework. The agriculture isn't the goal. It's the framework. It's the loom. And there are other looms that just are not as conducive to weaving this tapestry. Amen. So, Lord, we know that economy is important. We know that earning money is essential, at least, at least right now. We know that. But that's not what it's all about. You say, if I take that job, I'm going to make less money. Okay, that means you're paying. You're giving up something that you could earn. But are you purchasing with that loss something more valuable than the loss? Did you follow what I said? I'd rather make $9 an hour and have a fullness in my life, have a fullness in my relationships, than make $100 an hour and be empty. What, what is money good for? It's good for purchasing something. So be wise and use it. Forfeit money to gain relationships. Forfeit money to gain life. Forfeit money to help your family to move this thing in the right direction. Amen. But they're, they're paying higher than that in Babylon these days. I don't care. They were paying more in Europe than they were paying in Palestine in the 1930s and 20s. Amen. But they were seeking to avoid something bigger than money could buy. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Let's cast our lot and throw our mark in with the people of God. Amen. Let's take this thing forward. Let's believe for it. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Lord, the light of your love is shining in the midst of the darkness shining. Jesus, light of the world, shine upon us. Set us free by the truth you now bring us. Shine on me. Lord, shine on me. Shine, Jesus, shine. Fill this land with the Father's glory. Place, Spirit, place. Set our hearts on fire. Slow river flow. Flood. 
Tocca 